Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Revolution, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. Here's Pastor Nick. The title of today's message is Water for Those Who Thirst. Last week we left off here in our study of the book of Acts, we're going right through the book. We left off seeing Barnabas and Saul being sent out as the very first missionaries. They were following the leading of the Holy Spirit and that church where they were at in Antioch sent them out along with a few companions. They sent out a missionary team to go into the ancient Roman world and preach the gospel and make disciples of Jesus and plant churches in areas where the good news about Jesus was not yet known. And Saul and Barnabas, they were both ethnically Jewish. But what's interesting about both of them is that they had each grown up outside of Israel in the Greek-speaking regions of the Eastern Roman Empire. Saul, or Paul, he had grown up in Tarsus, which is in eastern Turkey. Barnabas had grown up on the Greek-speaking island of Cyprus. And so where did they go on their first missionary journey? I find it interesting. First, they went to Cyprus, which is where Barnabas grew up. And then they went to Turkey, which is what we're going to see today. And that's where Paul grew up. These are the places where these men had grown up. It would seem that now, having become disciples of Jesus, having had their lives changed by the gospel, they're, they're just filled with this desire to go back to the places they grew up and share with the people there the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus did for them so that those people can receive that and be saved. So here's Paul and Barnabas. They grew up in these places. They both speak Greek. And whereas many Jewish Christians at this time especially were prejudiced against Gentiles or non-Jews, Paul and Barnabas understood the gospel in the sense that they understood that Jesus came for all people, all ethnicities. And so they had this great desire to reach out even to the Gentiles with the love of God and the hope of the gospel and to welcome in whoever would receive it. In this part of the first missionary journey here, there are three things that we're going to see. First, we're going to see changes, then we're going to see a message, and then we're going to talk about the response. So changes, a message, and the response. That's our outline for today. First of all, changes. Please read with me chapter 13, starting in verse 13. It says this, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. You know, some people love change, but for most people, change is something we process as a sense of loss, even if it's a good change, right? Even if it's a, a positive change, like you changed out your, your trailer home for a nice, you know, house with a yard or something, right? It's still, there's a change and still there's some kind of sense of loss in there, right? Like you changed out your 1988 Honda, uh, you know, Honda Civic for like a nice new car. It's still, there's a sense of loss. There's part of it that has changed. And with any change, there's a sense of insecurity that comes and there's a fear of the unknown. Now here in verse 13, we see three significant changes that took place here halfway through this first missionary journey. First, there was a change of order, then there was a change of geography, and then there was a change of personnel. Let me, let me show you. There's actually a lot, quite, quite a bit right here in just this first verse, verse 13. First of all, we see a change of order. Until now, we have always read about 
Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. But now, interestingly, in this first part of verse 13, we read about Paul and his companions. We see this marked change in order. You know, Paul and Saul, by the way, is the same person. Saul was his Jewish name. Paul was a Roman name, which it seems that he began using when he went out into these predominantly Gentile areas of the Roman Empire. This is something that a lot of people do nowadays. Immigrants do this, you know, when they come to a new country or people who work cross-culturally. Sometimes they will take on a name which fits better in that setting just because it's more common to that place. I was once invited to speak at this conference in Finland. And the conference was in Finland, but it was for Chinese students. It was kind of interesting because in China, these students didn't have much opportunity to learn about Jesus or study the Bible. And so when they would come to Europe to study, a lot of them were hearing the gospel for the first time. A lot of them were becoming Christians. So I'm at this conference and all these Chinese students, you know, they would come up and introduce themselves to me. And they all had names like Jessica and, uh, and Sally and Mike. You know, you mean this person from China and they're like, my name is Sally. And you're like, really? You're from China and your name is Sally? And they'd be like, no, no, no. And then they tell me their actual name and I'd be like, I'm just going to call you Sally, okay? Because that's just a lot easier for me. So thank you. So they would choose a Western name to be more relatable to people in the West where they were. So for Paul, this is the same thing he's doing. This Roman name that he had isn't just to fit in, but it also has significance. In choosing this name, there's a meaning and significance to it because Paul in Latin means small. Saul, on the other hand, in Hebrew, means desired one or exalted one. So it would seem that in choosing this name, this man is making a statement about how his identity has changed now that he has come to understand the gospel. Whereas before he thought that he was a pretty big deal, now he views himself differently. He views himself as a small person who needs a lot of grace. He, he's a small person who's hugely loved by God. He's a small person living to tell others about a great God. The change in order, though, is a matter of leadership. Until now, we've read about Barnabas and Saul, but now, interestingly, we read about Paul and his companions. Right, the order has changed. Now starting here from this point on, Paul's leadership and his prominence are going to be evident in this missionary journey and from here on out. And the question is, if you're Barnabas, how do you react to something like that? I mean, here's this guy that you yourself reached out to. You're the one who invited him to join you. And now this guy's taking the reins and you're taking the back seat. Your name's not even mentioned in this. Now it's Paul and his companions. You're just one of the nameless companions now. Let me ask you this. How do you respond to that? How about you in your own life when someone else in your company gets promoted above you? Maybe you've been there longer. When someone else in your field has success where you don't, how do you respond to that? Maybe like Barnabas, you know, you, you've been there longer and, and this person comes in and all of a sudden they have success and this, they rise in leadership above you. But I love the heart of Barnabas. If you look at it here, look at, the, look at how Barnabas reacts and we'll see this continuing on. As Paul's gifting and leadership result in Paul being elevated to this leadership role, Barnabas seems to be okay with it. He doesn't quit. He doesn't split off and take half the group with him and do their own thing. No, he continues on and he lets Paul take the lead and he just continues working with them. I love that Barnabas is more concerned about God's mission than he is about his own ego or his own image. 
he's so secure in his identity, it seems to me, of who he is in Christ. He doesn't need to be the guy in charge. He doesn't need the title of leader. That's not where he gets his sense of value, his sense of worth. He gets his sense of value and worth from the fact of who he is in God's eyes. That before God, he's a beloved son, so valuable, so loved by God that God would leave heaven to come for him and fight for him and suffer for him and even go to hell for him so that he could be his. And now he has the privilege of serving God. And, and Barnabas's attitude is, whatever my role, I'm just privileged to serve God. I'm here to serve the Lord. I love that heart of Barnabas. And I would ask you that question too. How about you? Where do you get your sense of identity and your sense of value from? Do you derive it from your success at work, from some hobby that you're particularly good at, or, or maybe from a sense that you're just generally better than other people you know? All of those things, let me tell you, they're terrible foundations upon which to build an identity, on which to build a life. And here's why, because all of those things are subject to change. Because what happens when you fail? What happens when someone else is better than you at that thing? Your identity was built upon that and now your identity crumbles. But if you base your identity on who you are in God's eyes, then like Barnabas, if someone else succeeds in that field or gets promoted above you, it doesn't destroy you. Because it doesn't change who you are. It doesn't take away from your sense of value and worth because that is so secure. It's unchanging because it's based in God's grace and God's faithfulness, not in you and what you do. The second change we see in this first verse here, verse 13, the second change is a change of geography. I think this is interesting. So, you know, you can look at the map. Most of you probably have a map in your Bible of this first missionary journey. Here's what happens. They leave Paphos here, which is in Cyprus, they get on a boat and they ride this boat up to Perga in Pamphylia, which is the southern coast of the mainland of Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. In verse 14, we read this. Then when they arrived there in Perga of Pamphylia, they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Now, Antioch in Pisidia, it's important to note, is a different city than the Antioch which they left from originally, which where the church was. That Antioch was in Syria. In fact, there were 16 different cities in the ancient Roman world which had the name Antioch. Kind of like in our day, there's the, we use the name Springfield for everything. I looked it up. There are 36 different cities named Springfield in the United States. For them, it was Antioch. They just had a lot of cities with that name. So this Antioch, Antioch of Pisidia, is different, but it, this one is 120 miles north inland from Perga, which is the port city there on the southern coast of Turkey, which is where they arrived from Cyprus. So they go, they arrive by boat to the southern coast of Turkey. They immediately leave and go 120 miles north. And this city, Antioch and Pisidia, was was located in a region called Galatia. Now, maybe you've heard of a letter that Paul wrote. Paul's letter to the Galatians. We have that in our New Testament. That was a letter that Paul wrote to the new believers that are gonna be in the churches that he's gonna start here on this first missionary journey. Galatia wasn't a city like Ephesus or Corinth. Galatia was a region, and Antioch and Pisidia was one of the major cities in this region. But it's kind of intriguing, isn't it? I mean, why, of all places in the world, would Paul go here to Antioch and Pisidia, to this region of Galatia. I mean, of all the cities in the ancient world, why would he leave Cyprus and make a beeline, like as soon as he arrives in 
um, Perga, he just immediately leaves and goes to this town. Why didn't he stop in Perga? Why didn't he do some missionary work there? Why was he in such a hurry to get to Antioch in Pisidia? And it's interesting because when you look at Paul's letters, you can actually piece together the circumstances that tell us why Paul went to this place when he did. We know that when Paul came to the region of Galatia, to the city of Antioch and Pisidia, he was in bad shape physically. He was hurting. He was not doing well health-wise. Antioch and Pisidia, again, it's the it's region of Galatia. And what's interesting about it is it's located in the mountains. We would probably consider them low mountains. But when you're coming from sea level, they're, they're you know, pretty high mountains. It was at an elevation of 4,000 feet. Now, historians say that because of the high elevation, Galatia was a place that many people came to to escape the malarial fevers that plagued the coastal regions of the Mediterranean. And it was known that there were health benefits to the high altitude and the drier climate of the region of Galatia. Just like in our day, I mean, I have a friend when we were growing up, he was a child and he had such bad asthma that his parents moved their whole family to Arizona because the climate was better for his health. Now, that's kind of the same thing here with Galatia. It was known for being a good place to live for that reason. Hey, everyone. Pastor Nick here inviting you to come out on Sunday, November 14th to Whitefields Community Church. We will have special guest Dominic Doan with us. Dominic is a pastor, and he is the author of the book, When Faith Fails, Finding God in the Shadow of Doubt. So if you or anyone you know ever struggles with doubt, or if you have questions about deconstruction or deconstructing faith, this is for you. Come out and join us Sunday, November 14th at any of our three services at 8 a.m., 9.30, or 11 a.m. and invite a friend or family member to join you as we pursue faith in the face of doubts. Now back to the rest of this message. And most Bible scholars, most historians believe that that's what's going on here. That Paul and his team left Cyprus and came directly, intentionally, to the highlands of Galatia because Paul had come down with some sort of malarial fever. There's a fever in particular, they believe it was, it's known as Malta fever. And they came to this region so that Paul could get better and continue doing ministry just now in a region where he, it's better for his health. Let me, let me show you what kind of bad shape Paul was in when he arrived here in Antioch and Pisidia. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul is writing to the Galatians about his arrival here in Antioch, and he says this, You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. He's saying the reason he originally went to Galatia was because of a bodily ailment that he had at the time. In verse 14, he says, And through my condition, or I'm sorry, though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn me or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, even Christ Jesus. Isn't that interesting? That apparently God guided Paul to Antioch, to the region of Galatia, through a illness that he suffered. And he went there because it was a place where it was going to be better for his health. I mean, can you just imagine Paul and Barnabas, the other missionaries who are with them, they're praying as they go out, right? They're praying, God, would you please lead us as we go? Show us where's the place that you want us to be. Guide us to the place you want us to share the gospel and preach and establish churches. Do you think at the time they were praying that they would have imagined that the way that God would lead them would be through a malarial fever, through an illness? 
But now in hindsight, we can look back on this and we can say, yes, it seems that God was using this thing to get this missionary group to Galatia where God would use them to establish several churches and and it results in a book of the Bible being written. This is what we call providence. Providence is the work of God, the intervention of God in our lives in these kind of behind-the-scenes ways, determining and guiding the details of our lives which are out of our control, but which often have a huge impact on the course that our lives take. Many of you have probably experienced things like this. Hardship, inconvenience, frustration, physical ailments, things that have sidelined you, things that have changed your course in life. An unexpected or undesired change in your life. A diagnosis, a a layoff from work. It's encouraging to see this in the life of Paul. That he comes down with this terrible illness, but in retrospect now we can see the providential hand of a loving God at work in all of these events. I hope that you're encouraged by that because I certainly am. What it means for me, what it means for you is that God loves you more than you even realize. It means that God is doing more in your life than what you can even realize in the moment and even comprehend in that moment. And the final change we see here in verse 13 is is this. It's a change of personnel. So we saw a change of geography, a change of order. Now we see a change of personnel. Now we don't know the names of all the other people who joined Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey, but certainly it wasn't just the two of them. There was a group with them. But we we read this one guy, John. Now this guy is known in other places in the Bible by two names. His name is John Mark. It's very common for people at that time to have two first names like that. And if you've ever heard of the Gospel of Mark, and then you've wondered, who is Mark? Like, I don't remember a disciple of Jesus named Mark. Who is Mark? Well, this is Mark. This man, John Mark, he was the son of a woman who was a disciple of Jesus during the time of Jesus' ministry. And John, was, uh, John Mark was a boy, and he grew up around the disciples. And Mark's gospel is the apostle Peter's account of the life and ministry of Jesus written down and recorded by this man that we're reading about right here, John Mark. So here we read that he's part of this missionary journey. And when they get to Perga, it says that he left them and went to Jerusalem. Now we don't know the circumstances under which he left. But the language here is especially strong and it carries a very negative connotation. Basically, he bailed on them. He deserted them. He ditched them. Maybe he was homesick. We don't know. Maybe he didn't like it that Saul was now, or sorry, that Paul was now going to be the leader. Maybe he was scared of the journey ahead because as they go up in the mountains, traditionally mountains were the places where rebels and thieves and robbers would hide out. It was dangerous to travel in the mountains. Maybe there was an argument or a personal conflict that we don't know about. But whatever it was, we can be sure of this. The way that John Mark left here in verse 13, it wasn't good. Because later on in chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas are going to get into a big argument about John Mark. They're going to be ready to go on their second missionary journey. And John Mark wants to come with them again. And Paul and Barnabas are going to say, you know, they get in an argument about whether or not they should let him come. Paul says, no way. This guy bailed on us before. He deserted us. He's not reliable. He's a quitter. And Barnabas says, you know, he's this big-hearted you know, encouraging man. And he says, come on, Paul, everybody gave you a second chance. Why can't you give this guy a second chance? And so the great apostle Paul and this man Barnabas, the son of encouragement, they end up getting in such a big fight over this issue that they end up parting ways and just saying, we just can't work together anymore. 
Isn't that interesting that these two men, the very first missionaries, pastors and leaders, apostles in the early church, they still had fights and conflicts and friction. Isn't that interesting? Because I'll tell you what, it's not a problem that arguments and conflicts between people arise, even between people who are dedicated to living godly Christian lives. Conflicts, disagreements, hurt feelings, they happen. We shouldn't be surprised by that. It's part of any relationship that we enter into. Anytime you get two people near each other, it's a matter of time before they'll butt heads on something. But what matters is what you do with these conflicts, how you handle these conflicts. That's what's important. Now, I remember that uh, when I lived in Hungary, I I worked with a young pastor, um, and he was newly married, and we got to talking about marriage one time, and he told me, you know, my wife and I, we've been married for a couple years now, and we've never gotten in a fight, because we both just love Jesus a lot, and we never fight, right? Now, some people might hear that, and they might say, wow, what an awesome testimony, like, what a godly couple, right? But here's the truth, and it turned out after a couple years. The truth was that instead of dealing with legitimate feelings that they had, they're both just kind of bottling up, they're suppressing their feelings and disagreements, their hurts, and they're just trying to put on their happy face all the time. And after a few years, you can't do that for, for very long, right? After a few years, it developed into resentment and unhappiness and a very unhealthy marriage with two very depressed people. Because conflicts and disagreements, they're part of life. And whenever you get two people or more together in close proximity to one another, it's going to happen. So it's not that conflict is bad. It's not that arguments or disagreements are bad. It's a question, rather, of what are you going to do with them? How are you going to handle them? Are you going to respond in a godly way? Are you going to show love and compassion? Are you going to show forgiveness and forbearance? See, that's what's distinctive about Christianity. What's distinctive about Christianity is not that Christians just always get along and are are super happy all the time. It's that Christians have a distinctive way of handling and responding to conflict, which is shaped by how God dealt with us. That's what it's shaped by. That at one time, we were in conflict with him. And while we were in conflict with him, while we were enemies with him, he gave his life for us. He laid down everything for us. He forgave us of our sins before we ever asked for forgiveness, before we ever repented. He did it. You see, that's what's distinctive about Christianity. And it comes from an understanding of the gospel. And not to get too far ahead of the story or to to ruin it for you, but Paul and Barnabas and even John, Mark and and Paul, they're all going to reconcile later on down the line. So here we begin this section halfway through the missionary journey. We see a lot of changes. And, And we also see here the distinctively Christian approaches to facing changes that come from an understanding of the gospel and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Let's go on to our next section, which is a message. Let's read from verse 14. On the Sabbath day, they went into a synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the ruler of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen up. I love that he's preaching it, right? He's moving his hands. I think you're not really preaching unless you're using your hands. That's my opinion. But a typical synagogue service would have a reading from the Torah, and then there would be a sermon time. And it was common that if there was a distinguished visitor, you know, a visiting teacher, a leader of the synagogue might invite them to share a a word with the assembly. And Paul knew that this would happen. 
You know, so when he goes to synagogue, he's probably dressed up to make sure that they understand that he is a, you know, a teacher, a rabbi. He's prepared for this. And he's going to take this opportunity, this open door here in the synagogue, to share with them the message that he's traveled all this way to tell them. And there are two parts that I want to show you from this message. First of all, there's the story behind all the stories. And then secondly, there's the rest of the story. So the story behind all the stories and then the rest of the story. He begins with the story behind all the stories. In verse 17, he begins by recounting to them Israel's history. You can follow along with me. I'm not going to read every verse. He's going to talk about how God chose Israel to be his people because God had a plan for history and he wanted to carry that plan out through this people, Israel. And what was that plan? That plan was the story behind all the stories. And Paul now begins to recount the stories. The slavery in Egypt, the exodus, the wilderness wanderings, the conquest of Canaan. It was very common for the Jewish people to recount their history. Even if you read some of the Psalms and it seems, why do they keep just going over the history? It was very important to them to recount the history. And that's what Paul's touching on here. In verse 20, he, said, he mentions to them the period of the judges. And he mentions Samuel, the greatest of the judges. And from verse 21, the first king, Saul, who had the image of a king but lacked the heart of God. In verse 22, God raised up another king after Saul, a king after his own heart, one who didn't look like a king. He was a shepherd boy from a poor family, but he had something that God considered beautiful and valuable. He had an amazing heart for God and a desire to do God's will. And God made a promise to David, we read there, that one of his descendants would be the Messiah. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com.